All right, 1 Corinthians 9, 19 to 23. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with the blessing, share with them in its blessings. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Carrie Lynn. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Bill Gorman, and I'm the campus pastor here at the Brookside campus. And want to add my welcome to Carrie Lynn. So we're so thankful for you and for your coming this morning, especially in the rain. Um, also, if you're a child or uh, elementary school student with us this morning, you can grab one of these uh, Kid Connects um, to help follow along with the message and even follow up uh, at home about the service with your parents afterwards. So if you didn't get one of these on your way in, um, we have some of those and you can ask your mom and dad uh, if you can go pick one of those up um, this morning. So as we begin our time, before we look at this uh, passage that Carrie Lynn read for us, uh, I have some exciting news to share uh, with us this morning, and that is that our associate pastor, Paul Brandis, and his wife, Ashley, welcomed their son, Bevan David Brandis, into the world yesterday at 6.03 p.m. So very exciting, and uh, Bevan weighed nine pounds, four ounces, and was uh, 20 and a half inches long. So he's a big baby, and uh, mom and baby are both doing really well. I'm not sure about Paul, but mom and baby are doing really well. Uh, so be praying for them. I was even texting with Paul a little bit this morning. They're just so excited. So I know they appreciate your prayers, and we'll continue to appreciate those going forward. Well, before we uh, look at this passage, let's begin with prayer. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Help us now to hear and obey what you say to us today. Through Christ our Lord and by the power of the Holy Spirit, amen. So when you hear a passage like the one we just heard read, if you read the entire passage of, of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, at least verses 1 to 23, you begin to wonder, what is Paul saying here? Is he saying that a pastor should get paid or that a pastor shouldn't get paid? And, and I guess maybe you probably have a hunch about what I think about that. Um, and, and actually, you know, pastors are kind of the worst, right? I mean, uh, we come in and we work one day a week, and then we expect to get paid for it, right? I mean, at least that's the perception often, right? Um, did anyone catch the, it was a national news story uh, last month about a pastor who recently asked his congregation uh, to help him raise money for a private jet. Um, and this is not just any jet. In fact, it's an upgrade from the private jet that he already had. Um, so what the jet he's looking for, it's a, it's a Gulfstream 650. It's basically the, the Rolls-Royce of private jets. And uh, it's available for the bargain price of only uh, $65 million. Um, but, you know, it's, it's a ministry tool. It's about proclaiming the gospel, uh, the gospel throughout the world. Um, of course, you can buy about 50,000 round-trip tickets to Africa uh, for $65 million, um, but who wants to fly commercial? Um, now, this particular pastor, and frankly, anytime you hear pastors making those kinds of ridiculous requests, 
um, they're really in, in a vastly different camp uh, than we are. It's the prosperity gospel, prosperity preaching. Um, core to their beliefs is that God wants everyone to be financially rich and perfectly healthy, and that if you just have enough faith and give enough money, of course, to your favorite televangelist, um, Jesus sort of becomes your own personal genie in the bottle. And at one level, it sounds awesome, right? If it's just a formula, you work this out and everything's going to be great. But frankly, that's an entirely different faith than ours. And whenever I hear those kind of wild stories, first, it's easy to laugh because it's so preposterous, so ridiculous. But then it also starts to make you feel sick to your stomach a little bit because I realize that for most people, he and I are the same. They just look at us as pastors. And really, the only apparent difference between him and me is he's just really much better at it. I mean, uh, apparently he's getting the jet out of the deal. Anyone want to buy me a, a jet? I don't know. I didn't think so. Um, but then after I feel crazy and then I feel a little sick, then it's just sort of really sad because I realize it's not just what people think of me, but that's what they end up thinking about the church, what they think about us, what ultimately they think about Jesus. And then I hope in saying that you don't hear me throwing stones because I don't, I don't mean to at all because every one of us has our issues. I've got my issues. Um, all of us, myself included, like money. We like power. We like influence. And like any pastor, any leader, I'm in constant danger of falling prey to the temptation to even subtly manipulate or abuse power for my own self-interest. And I can't tell you how thankful I am at Christ Community that we have such great structures of accountability and transparency in place to prevent that from happening. But the problem really here isn't simply an abuse of power or greed, as nasty as those things are. The biggest problem is it fundamentally twists and distorts the gospel. Because this is not why Jesus died. And Paul's main point here is, is not about money. And I'm not trying to get myself off the hook, and, and we'll talk about what Paul says about money and pastors and teachers here. But Paul's main point isn't about whether or not a pastor should get paid. His point is that there's something so radical about the gospel, something so transformative about who Jesus is, that all of us as people in the church should be radically like and unlike everybody else. We should be just like and nothing like everybody else. Did you catch that? If you're a Christian, you should be just like and nothing like everyone else. Because we're still ordinary humans living in Kansas City in 2015. I mean, if you're a Christian, that doesn't change. Yet the good news of Jesus is so radical, it is worth any sacrifice, and it changes everything. It's why we scoff at televangelists who make these kinds of outrageous claims. Because whether you're a Christian or not, right, we're, we're surprised, we're not surprised, I should say, when people abuse power, when people are greedy. That's just what human beings do. Yet we know that if a person calls themselves a follower of Jesus, that, that something should be different. That they should respond to those things differently. Now, it's really easy to point to the extreme so we can feel good about ourselves, but what about us? See, Jesus calls us to be just like and nothing like everybody else. 
Um, kids, think about it this way. If you've ever seen the, the newspaper or online or those, those newspaper sheets, I keep saying newspaper, kids don't read newspapers. But when I was a kid, growing up in the comic section of the newspaper, they'd always have these pictures, right, where you had to list all the differences between the pictures. At first, when you would look at them, everything, they seem exactly the same. But as you began to look deeper, you see really they're two completely different pictures. And that's what Paul is talking about here. That's the life that Jesus calls us to. So last week we skipped ahead in 1 Corinthians. We've been in this series preaching through the book. We skipped ahead to chapter 15 on Easter to talk about the resurrection and how it changes everything. And two weeks ago we were still in chapter 8 where Paul began talking about Christian freedom. What does it mean to live in the freedom that we have in the gospel and how to do that responsibly? And that's because of Jesus, we're free, but there are things that are better than freedom. That was Paul's point back in chapter 8. There was that, was the whole chapter where we talked about meat sacrifice to idols, that whole conversation. And in that chapter, Paul basically just says, well, meat is meat and that idols are nothing. But he says, if it hinders the work of the gospel, then it's better just not to eat meat. And now he's continuing that same conversation here in chapter 9. That's where he's going. So we're picking up right at the end of that conversation, continuing on in chapter 9. So here in chapter 9, Paul gives us an example of what he's given up for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Jesus, and why he's done so. And essentially what he's saying is that we should be just like and nothing like everyone else. Yes, we love our rights, and yet we're called to sacrifice Yes, we love our preferences, and yet we're called to service. Yes, we love instant gratification, and yet we're called to a lasting reward. We should be just like and nothing like everybody else. So what Paul does in the first 18 verses of chapter 9 here is he shows us that we have rights and yet we're called to sacrifice. We have rights, and yet we're called to sacrifice. That's his point here in these first 18 verses. And Paul uses himself as an example of what he's calling the Corinthians to back in chapter 8, to give up their rights, to give up their freedom for the sake of the gospel. Remember what we said in chapter 8, that, that love for you is better than freedom for me. So Paul is using himself as an example to show us how that works. So take again a look at verses 1 through 7. Of chapter 9. Paul says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you, Corinthians, not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we have the right to eat or drink? Again, he's pointing back to chapter 8. Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruits? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? So what's going on here? What is Paul saying in these verses in chapter 18? 
Well, in ancient Greece and Rome, but in Greece in particular, there was lots of traveling preachers and philosophers, and it was kind of a big deal to be a traveling lecturer. We have these people today, right? People who travel around and speak at events. And the Greeks loved their philosophers, right? I mean, they loved these itinerant speakers. So sort of picture um, Matt Foley, uh, motivational speaker, living in a van down by the river, um, only a lot smarter, right? This is what he So guys who travel around um, and speak, and that's how they, they made a living. And these teachers, they supported themselves in a number of different ways. Sometimes they charged a fee uh, to come and hear them speak. So if they were popular enough, they would, you know, charge admission to their event. Um, other times, uh, they would stay with wealthy patrons. So they'd travel the city, from city to city. They'd find a wealthy patron. They'd stay there with them, and that's how they provided for themselves. Others sort of took more the street musician approach. They'd just kind of set up their guitar case, and they'd start doing their speech and hope that people sort of tossed in some money while others worked a trade in order to fund their work. And it was this final approach that Paul, who was a traveling preacher, took. He worked a trade, he made tents, and he didn't collect fees from those he was speaking to, those he was preaching to. But Paul wants us, his readers, to be very clear that this wasn't because he couldn't or shouldn't be paid for doing the work of the gospel. In fact, Paul says, he has a right to be paid. In verse 14, he says, The Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. And then Paul, in the verses leading up to that verse, he is passionately making this case. He uses over a dozen rhetorical questions in these first 18 verses. And, and first he points to the precedent of, of other church leaders who receive the benefit um, of receiving pay in their work in the gospel. And then next, he, he holds up the example of, of soldiers and winemakers and shepherds. He says, no one expects these people to, to work hard in their vocation, exert massive effort, and receive nothing in return. He says, so why should my work be any different? And then he points them back to the Old Testament. He takes them all the way back to the, the Jewish law, the Torah, Notice in verses 8 through 10, he says, Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. It is for oxen that God, is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak certainly for our sake? And in that quotation that he's, he's citing from the book of Deuteronomy, Paul's making a lesser to greater argument. He's starting with the lesser and arguing to the greater. Um, one New Testament scholar, Craig Blomberg, he puts it this way. He says, if God is concerned with rewarding animals for their work, how much more must he be concerned for workers he has made in his own image? And then Paul goes on to remind them that the Old Testament, Old Testament priests who served in the temple and the tabernacle, they were supported in this way. And that even Jesus commanded his disciples when they went out on mission, not to worry about stocking up on supplies beforehand, because Jesus says in all the gospels, but Matthew 10.10, 10, for example, he says, the laborer deserves his food. Again, Craig Blomberg's helpful in summarizing the argument here. He says, all told, there are five lines of argument that Paul makes here. Common practice, scriptural precedent, intrinsic justice, Jewish custom, and Christ's command. 
And then he adds, few in Paul's day would have disputed the logic of these examples. So in other words, Paul has laid it on really thick here in these first 18 verses that he has the right to be paid. And so that what we would expect is the natural conclusion of this argument would be for Paul to say to the Corinthians, now, now pay up. You owe me. I've just made this case. This is completely legitimate. I have a right to receive this benefit. But in fact, he says the exact opposite. He says, even though I clearly indisputably have this right to receive pay, I give that up for your sake and for the sake of the gospel. Look at verse 15. Paul says, but I've made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. So what is Paul saying here? Why is this the case? Well, the good news of what Christ has done and the unobstructed spread of that news is what matters most. That's Paul's point. And if in his case, receiving financial provision impedes the spread of the gospel, he's willing in a heartbeat to give that up for the sake of the gospel. Paul's point is this, as it relates back to what he said in chapter 8. He says, if I'm willing to give up my right to pay, to receiving financial provision for my work, if I'm willing to give up that right, then surely you can give up not eating meat or eating meat, whichever the case may be, every now and again for the sake of others. If I'm willing to make the sacrifice of receiving financial provision so much that I have to work a second job to do this, can't you choose not to eat meat every now and again? So, for example, in our contemporary setting, um, all of you here, through your generosity, uh, put food on my table and clothes on my back and a roof over my head, which, by the way, me and my family are very, very grateful for. Um, I don't say that enough. I'm so thankful for the generosity of our congregation. But if that were to hinder the work of the gospel, I would give that up, get another job, and preach the gospel on the side. I would. However, in our culture, it doesn't hinder the gospel, I guess, unless you're asking for a jet. Um, in fact, quite the opposite. Because my physical needs are provided for, it enables me to spend all of my energies here working, proclaiming the gospel and strengthening the church, building it up, equipping the saints for the work of the ministry, because I don't have to worry about providing for my family with a second line of work. Does that make sense? And, and this is, the, the point is the gospel. Is the gospel being helped or hindered by the pastor by the leaders receiving financial provision in their work. The point is that we as Christians, not just pastors, by the way, ought to be willing to do anything to give up anything for the sake of the good news. Are you with me on this? This is what Paul's point is. We love our rights, and yet, and yet we're called to sacrifice we love our rights and yet we're called to sacrifice, which raises an important question for us. What am I giving up? 
we are like and unlike. We are like, we have rights, but we are unlike in that we're called to give those up when necessary. And so if you're a Christian, don't ask the natural question, which is what am I going to get by being a Christian? Ask the unnatural question, what am I giving up? What am I sacrificing? What are you willing to give up for the sake of the gospel? Or the more convicting question for me this week, what am I not willing to give up for the sake of the gospel? Our time, our energy, our treasure, our financial provision, our safety, our comfort, our security. When I was thinking about this, I think of what C.S. Lewis writes about specifically financial generosity in his book, Mere Christianity. But really what Lewis expounds there applies across the board to anything we might give up for the sake of the gospel, to how we are both like and like, unlike everybody else. Because in that section, Lewis makes the point, he says, it's impossible to know if you're giving enough money or time or energy or whatever. He says, there's no good way to know because we're all different. So it's impossible to know if we're giving enough. But this is his advice. He says, but look at someone in the same situation as you who doesn't have Jesus. Not to judge them, but to judge yourself. He says, let's say you make about the same amount of money, have the same number of kids. Essentially, you're the same. But if you look at their life and you look at your life and you both live in the same size house, drive the same kind of car, have all the same toys, go all on, this, all on the same vacations, but they know Jesus or they, that you know Jesus and they don't, Lewis's point is then you're not, you're not giving enough away. If you have all the same hobbies and kids' activities, you're not giving enough away. This is how Lewis concludes. He writes, if our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things that we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditures exclude them. Let me just read that again. Lewis is so good there. He says, if our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. For the sake of the gospel, what am I willing to give up? What are you willing to give up? Second, we all love our preferences and yet we're called to serve. We all love our preferences, and yet we're called to serve. In the next section, Paul uh, takes this to a whole new level. And this is where we really see this like and unlike contrast begin to come into view fully. He, that we should be just like and nothing like everyone else. Take a look at verses 19 through 22. This is so key. Paul writes this, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win some. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though myself not being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. I have become all things to all people that by all means, I might save some. 
To those who were Jewish and under the law of Moses, the insiders, if you will, Paul knows how to adapt. He says, I can, I can go and be like one of them. To the Greeks, to the Romans, to those who have nothing to do with the law, the outsiders, Paul says, I know how to adapt and be with them. He's not breaking God's moral laws. He doesn't say, I don't, I don't become an adulterer to reach adulterers, right? But he knows how to speak the language. He, he knows how to interact with them in ways that are meaningful. Similar to those who are weak. He's saying in those areas of freedom that we have as Christians, and there are so many places where we have massive freedom as Christians, we use our freedoms to become slaves. Slaves to the gospel that others might embrace the good news about Jesus. Even if it's not our preference. So, for example, you might not like hanging out at the proverbial water cooler at work, whatever that space is, but you do it anyway to love your coworkers and build relationship with them. Maybe you don't enjoy volunteering at your kid's school or in your HOA, but you do it anyway to love your neighbors and serve them. And you may not even like everything about our church. Maybe there's a song that we play that you just can't stand or you don't like when we show video clips or, or maybe you're a Christian and you don't like how much time we spend talking to people who aren't Christians yet here in church. But here's the thing, we're not gonna like everything. But if we are, want people to encounter the gospel and if people are encountering the gospel and this is Paul's point, then who really cares what I like? Because it's not about my preferences. See, Paul freely makes himself a servant to all. He's both free from anyone and yet a slave to everyone for the sake of the gospel. Paul is free to do whatever it takes in the advancement of the good news of the gospel, to love people well. And so are we. This is the freedom we have in the gospel. So the question is, am I loving people well? And loving people well means being like them, means being unlike them, all the while while being engaged with them. It means being like them, unlike them, all the while we're remaining engaged with them. Because see, to, to love someone in ways that they can actually receive, you have to understand them and communicate in terms and in language that they can actually understand, that they can actually receive. We don't make people bend to our terms before we love them. We go to them and love them in ways that are meaningful to them because that's exactly what Jesus has done for us. Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City, echoes Paul's words here in saying that in order to love people well in any cultures, Christian needs, Christians need to be, I love his language, reassuringly similar and startlingly different. For Christians to love people well, to, to share the gospel well in their culture, they need to be reassuringly similar and startlingly different. So, for example, we speak the same language. We share many of the same hopes and fears and ambitions. We love our city. We, we value work. We dress similarly. We have the same hobbies often. At first glance, we're the same. And that's the way it should be. When someone from Brookside walks into the Brookside campus of Christ community, they should look around and be like, yeah, this, this fits. These look like my people. These look like people in my neighborhood. 
So at first, we should look reassuringly similar. Because if you're too different, you're not going to have any impact on the people around you. An extreme example of this is people like the, the Amish, where it's like they're totally so separate, different, that they're, they're not even connected to the outside world. But look again. We're also called to love our enemies, to refuse gossip, to radical generosity and hospitality, to care for people who are different from us. We have the same fears, but our fears don't control us. We're called to forgive, to love, to respect. In other words, we ought to be startlingly different from our neighbors and those around us who don't know Christ. Because if you're exactly the same, you're not going to have an impact either. We should be exactly like and exactly opposite, unlike everybody else. And yet, all the while, being willing to engage. Because we build meaningful relationships with people who behave differently than us. And that work of building relationships with people who are different from us, that requires the sacrifice of our preferences, doesn't it? I mean, to spend time with people who aren't like you or who maybe you don't even like that much. I mean, maybe you don't like the language they use, the jokes they tell, the clothes they wear, but for the sake of the gospel, you give up your comfort and your preferences. If we're going to love well, it won't do any good to demand that non-Christians live like Christians. That is not the gospel. The good news isn't well, if you stop swearing and you wear more modest clothes and you come to church, then I'll tell you about Jesus. That is not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus died on the cross to rescue you from your sins. You don't have to prove your worth anymore and you're completely loved and accepted and then that news begins to change everything about you. But the change comes second. We don't do any good by making non-Christians act like Christians What we do is we just either make them mad at us or we just make nice people a little bit, lost people a little bit nicer and they're still lost. Because wearing the right clothes or not saying the right words or the wrong words, none of that saves you. Only Jesus does. And this is why we plant churches, actually, because you know Kansas City. Not all of Kansas City is the same. So we came to Brookside for the sake of Brookside and we became like Brookside to win Brooksiders. We started Shawnee in downtown for the same reason. Our downtown artists and our Olathe and Leewood suburbanites were not all the same, but the gospel is. And we want to bring it into every neighborhood. So how are you flexing to do that in your life? Are you loving well, just like and nothing like? We want to become all things to all people, that some people might be saved, that they might be rescued. And then finally, in verse 23, we see, yes, we love instant gratification, and yet we're called to a lasting reward. We live in an era today of unprecedented speed when it comes to communications and shipping, right? I mean, one of the most agonizing decisions I have to make is when I'm looking to buy something on Amazon and there's something with a lower cost but it doesn't have the prime shipping available. It's like, gosh, do I, do I really click on that and wait the extra time or is it worth it to pay a little bit more if it qualifies for the prime shipping? 
the other day, I was thinking about communications and how much it's sped up. The other day, I was talking to one of our senior pastors, who's also one of our more senior pastors, and, and he was recounting to me that he remembered, um, some of you know Kevin Harlan, he remembered, he was working at FCA, remember when they first introduced a fax machine at Fellowship of Christian Athletes when he was there. And he said to me, and if you know Kevin, Kevin's into technology. He's not, not a Luddite by any means. But he said, I remember when they introduced the fax machine, why would anybody use this? I mean, how could you possibly need to get something there faster than what you can just get there in the mail? And that's not that long ago. And now email is the new snail mail, right? If, you're, if you really want to get a hold of somebody, you don't email them. You text them. Or, or maybe you're live streaming the service right now on Periscope or Meerkat, right? I mean, somebody told me the other day they were streaming part of our service on, on Periscope. How cool is that, right? Um, so some people are like, Bill, I don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> and maybe I just included that to, for, the, for the people who are in tech so they can feel like, man, Bill really knows what's going on in tech these days. These are these apps that let you like live stream stuff. It's like Twitter, but you can live stream video. Um, anyway, didn't have that in the script, but... The point is, communication's really speeding up. And, and yet, in the middle of all of that, the gospel calls us to something really slow. Because relationships are slow. It's something that is that's far from instant gratification. Because it takes time to love people. It takes time to make the gospel message coherent in a broken world. And increasingly, we live in a culture where the categories of the Bible and the language of the church, there's not common understanding around that. So it takes time to really explain clearly and to help answer questions. And we've tried to make evangelism, sharing our faith, as sort of as instant as possible, right? So we just want to be able to, to kind of hand someone a track. Um, there's kind of the turn and burn variety. There's also, have you ever seen the tracks that look like money? They're the worst. It's like you're supposed to like leave them around. It's like, oh, I found a dollar. It's like, oh, wait, this is about Jesus. I mean, even as a pastor, that's kind of disappointing, right? When you, you're like, oh, man, I found five bucks. Oh, it's, it's not. Um, or we make just some passing comment. Or really, I think for most of us, I know this is for me, it's like we think this is going to be some big, long conversation, and we're worried we're not going to have all the answers, and then it's going to be awkward after the conversation because now it's like, oh, wow, they're weird. And, and so we just don't, Right? But there's nothing instant about what Paul describes. And it's certainly not just information that we're communicating. And if you begin to look at any research studies that are done um, about adults who change their belief systems, who convert to Christianity, it's almost always in the context of long-term, meaningful relationships. But the trouble is, is that takes so much more work, right? And we're in a hurry. We're desperate for results. And so we either do it poorly or we don't do it at all. Paul's approach is very different. Yes, he's looking for a reward, but it's not money. And it's not even success. His reward is the gospel itself. Look at what he says in verse 18, and then he jumps ahead to verse 23. Paul says, the gospel is my reward. He says, what then is the reward? That my preaching, I may, that in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. And I says, I do this for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. See, the gospel is its own reward. 
So do we have the right goal? Do we have the right end in mind? You see, the reward of participating in the gospel, in the work of the gospel, is the joy of getting to participate in the work of the gospel. This is the thing that's core to Christianity is you never get beyond the gospel. There isn't some kind of reward or better news beyond the good news of the gospel. God is the gospel. God is the reward. The gospel is the good news. The gospel is the reward. Are we patient enough? Are we looking far enough? Are our motives right? I love being a pastor. It is an amazing calling and it's such a privilege. And yet, like in any other work, in any other job, there are days and seasons when it's also really difficult. Uh, For example, like preaching on human sexuality for three weeks in a row. (laughs) When it seems like anything else would be a better job. But I'll tell you this, when I struggle with those different difficult seasons of pastoral work, what keeps me coming back, what, what gets me up in the morning, what gets me out of bed, is not the money. I mean, not even close. Because on some days I think I'd rather just be poor. <laughs> but what gets me out of bed, what keeps me coming back, is getting to see the gospel come alive in people's lives. I have folders, both paper and digital, that are stuffed full of notes and cards and emails and texts that are evidence of the work of God through the gospel in our midst. And I'm thinking, why am I doing this? This is so hard. I go to those folders and say, that's why we do this. For example, here's part of an email that I got permission uh, to share this week, and I received it a few months ago. I just want to read you this, because it's, just, it's a testimony of what, what God is doing in and through the gospel. So I spoke with you about my struggle with alcohol about five months ago. I'm doing so well, five months sober. I knew it was a bad thing for me, but I kept trying to figure out why. I, I don't know why, but the message yesterday somehow made everything so clear to me. I have struggled with eating disorders for literally 12 years, and I looked in the mirror last night and I finally saw myself. This person writes, this might not seem like a big deal to you, but after 12 years, I finally saw myself. Gosh, I'm sorry, they write, but I just want to thank you. You might not know it, but you have been a huge influence in my life. And then this is key, what they write next. And I thank God daily for Christ Community Church. That's what gets me out of bed in the morning. The gospel transforming us together as a church family. Because notice while that email is very gracious towards me, it ends with the church. Because this isn't just true for me as a paid pastor. This is for all of us. This is what we're all about as the body of Christ together in and for one another on behalf of one another. This is the reward that we are all pursuing regardless of our specific vocational calling. And it's ultimately the goal at which every one of our callings, indeed everything we do is aimed. We do it all for the sake of the gospel that we might share together in its work 
and in its reward. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we're so thankful that the gospel, the good news, is the reward.